And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy, we're just systematically making our way through this book. We're just getting started. And uh, as you're doing that, if you're new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. It's an absolute delight to have you with us. We would love to get to know you on a first-name basis, so be sure to fill out that little welcome tab, and I'd love to meet you out there on the South, South Foyer uh, after service. While you're finding 2 Timothy, I'd like you to take a minute just to call to mind people that have been a source of great encouragement to you. Maybe even today, this past week, this month. Maybe uh, you're going to have to go back several weeks, maybe even a, maybe in a year. But I want you to be thinking about what is it that they made a difference in your life. And when you think about like your spiritual development, who are the people that are coming to your mind like, hey, this, this person is, is pouring into me. I'm so grateful for this individual who has taken me under their wing, or I'm, I'm in their uh, life-giving discipleship Bible study, or I'm, I'm in their small group, and I'm so grateful for that. I want you to think about these people because it is very likely that they are encouragers, and they also give you an example. They, they're not perfect, but they love you. They are what we call a life-giving believer. And I want you to know I feel like I'm the product of life-giving believers. There are so many men and women that have poured into my life. Uh, when I just, I don't have to even go back very far and you just start thinking of people. I want to introduce you uh, to one. His name is Tyler Evans. And after I got out of school with my business degree, I started working in the business world. This guy here, Tyler Evans, uh, we went to the same church, uh, Southwest Bible Church, and he just kind of took me underneath his wing. He helped me be successful in business with my first job. But he also gave me a lot of firsts in life. So, for instance, he was heading up the youth ministry, and he, uh, being in the business world, uh, invited me to say, hey, listen, would you ever think about just coming uh, to lead music at a junior high retreat? And after I became a Christian, I was very involved in college uh, worship. And so I said, well, you know, sure, never done anything like that before, but why not, right? And I did, and, and he assigned me to a cabin of the feistiest junior high boys you could imagine, okay? And I got my introduction to youth ministry, and then he said, hey, would you be willing to just kind of like serve on our team? And so I said yes to that. That was a first, because I'd never been in a youth group before, so I wasn't really sure what to do. And then, like, he asked, would you be willing to lead a devotional? And I did. I led my first devotional for junior high kids. Then he asked, hey, would you be willing to teach uh, as a substitute, just one lesson in our high school, which was pretty intimidating because now all these high school kids, they had been Christians a lot longer than me. I'm like, what do I even have to offer them? But I had a chance to teach my very first lesson. Uh, the very first time I ever spoke at a Christian school, uh, he actually is the one who coached me. And when I talk about like Tyler, uh, he coached me by having me like write out what I was going to say, sometimes even present it to like our ministry team. And then he would tell me, like, what went well, how I could improve, areas like, man, I think you kind of missed it here. You might want to reconsider this. Well, the very first time I led an event or a retreat, it was this guy who was in my corner who was coaching me up. He was a, a life-giving mentor. He was a disciple that was making a difference in my life. And I think we all would like, man, I, I want to be a life-giving person, right? Who wants to be a drain on others? Chances are no one's going to, hey, that's me. No, we would like to be life-giving. But how do you do that? How do you become a life-giving believer in your relationships? The text we're going to look at today 
is going to give us the answer. We're going to get an inside look as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, on the dynamics of what it looks like to be a life-giving disciple in our relationships. And the first thing that you and I are going to need to know how, what to do is to deal with the disappointments. To just kind of bring you up to speed of where we're, we've been at, uh, we're studying the book of 2 Timothy. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul shortly before he was to be executed. He's being held in the maritime prison in Rome. He is just merely waiting for the judgment, the sentence, and with a flash of a sword, he's going to lose his life because he will not deny Jesus as Lord. And God had impressed upon him through the working of the Spirit to write a final letter to his protege, Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, a younger guy who Paul had actually put about 15 or so, maybe up to 20 years of investment in, but now this young guy is struggling, struggling in the ministry. Life seems upside down, and there were great difficulties, and so God has him write this letter. Do you remember what we saw last week? Paul gives this charge to not be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul, but to, like in verse 13, to retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love in Christ Jesus. And like verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us this treasure, the treasure of God's word, the treasure of the gospel. You are to be a spirit-filled individual. You need to guard it. There is suffering to be had. And if you do not walk in the Spirit, if you do not cherish Jesus Christ and know who you believed, you're going to end up like these folks in verse 15. Look at it. He says this, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So here he talks about one of the most grievous aspects of his life. Sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, we just kind of breeze over a verse like that. Oh, you're aware of the fact that all deserted me in Asia. <laughs> I want you to let that sink in. All turned away. Uh, this turning away has the idea that they were turned to other priorities and pursuits. And when he says all, he's, he's using what we would call acceptable hyperbole. It's not every single individual, but certainly those who would least expect to turn away. And there was a large number of them. And so he says all. In fact, he names two. Do you see that? Phygelus and Hermogenes. These, these were like perhaps even ringleaders of the opposition. These would have been the people you would have least expected. Like, there's no way these two guys would ever turn on the Apostle Paul or turn away from the gospel. And, but yet, let me tell you what's kind of going on. You see, in the Roman Empire, well, all of a sudden, the heat is getting turned up against Christians. At first, Rome didn't really even know what to do about this Jesus and then his followers. And when we talk about followers, like, all of a sudden, like, there's a widespread turning of people who have either claimed to see Jesus resurrected from the grave or were believing in the resurrection and now following him as Lord. And at first, Rome thought, this has got to be some sort of sect of Judaism because these are all Jewish, Jesus was Jewish. And yet, I mean, they crucified him, called him king of the Jews. And yet there's this widespread turning where people are showing their allegiance and following him. And it wasn't that they had adopted Jesus and they were worshiping him as God. I mean, that wasn't really the problem with Rome. 
because the Romans had a pantheon of gods. If you want to add Jesus to that, like, it's a little weird for them, but okay, whatever. Where Christians got in problem, got the problem was this. They worshiped only Jesus as Lord. They wouldn't once a year throw a little incense and bow down and say that Caesar's Lord. They're like, no way. We know who the real Lord is, and Caesar's not it. And if you're an egomaniac and you're running an empire, I want you to know that's not going to sit too well with you. And so the heat got turned up. The wheat got separated from the chaff. And you see this in other parts of the world where it costs you to follow Jesus. All the little fickle followers, that all goes away. You've got to be hardcore. You've got to be the real deal. You have to genuinely know Jesus. This idea of little fan clubs and just rah-rah rallies for Jesus, you know, but he makes no difference in your life and you're certainly not following him as Lord. That all kind of goes away when persecution hits. And get ready. It's already starting in our country. I want you to be prepared. But you need to know how to deal with the disappointments. And what was this turning away? Were they, were they like just become apostate? Were they actually denied the faith? Well, we don't know. It's interesting this word turned away is used in 2 Timothy 4.4 where they literally did turn away from the gospel or also in Titus chapter 1 verse 14. They turned away from the truth. We don't know what took place in each individual life. Cowardice, most certainly. Dereliction of duty, very likely. And some, some probably did. They, they turned away from the faith altogether, especially Paul. Because to identify with Paul, this apostle of Christ Jesus, well, that could end you and have you end up in the same situation that he was in. And so they put their distance between him. As Paul knew, Timothy was learning that if you were involved in the ministry of the Lord, kingdom ministry, there are going to be some major disappointments. You need to know that up front. There are going to be some challenges, some difficulties, some hardships, and sometimes you feel like your very heart is being ripped out of you. Let me give you some folks that you probably know. Like, for instance, Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll, actually, early on as a pastor, he had a lot of very discouraging situations. When he finally makes his way to First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, California, he has now come and, and started writing and talking about some of these experiences. But there were two couples that just were so factious and divisive and stirring the pot and getting as many people as possible to lead all sorts of problems in his church. And he says, and as a younger pastor, I didn't know what to do with it, but it was devastating to me. Another guy you might recognize, John MacArthur, pastor of over 50 years uh, at Grace Community Church, Sun Valley, California. Nine years into his ministry there, uh, he's gathering on a Tuesday morning with his pastoral team. And he begins by telling these men, listen, I just want you to know how much I love you and value doing ministry with you. And one of these five other pastors goes, hey, if you think that we're your friend, you've got another thing coming, buddy. And then they led a revolt, a mutiny, trying to eject him as pastor. And I've heard John MacArthur now on several occasions talk about these experiences, and he said it was absolutely devastating. You know, most pastors, they're pretty trusting, right? We like to see the best in individuals, right? And I want you to know, when you love people, when you invest in their development and you care for them, 
You do life together. You lay your life down for them. You pour yourself out for them. And then you get experiences like this. I want you to know it can take everything out of you. Uh, what usually happens when you've got factious individuals in church or you've got um, folks that just are behaving poorly, they always have a quote-unquote righteous reason of why they're, or they're behaving this way or why they're leaving the church and they're going to try to take as many people with them as possible. Um, if you think like, well, those experiences, that doesn't affect your pastors, you know, like that, like pastors, they're impervious to that sort of stuff, right? Well, actually not. Uh, I have uh, the opportunity of traveling and getting to know lots of different pastors. I have a lot of close senior pastor friends. On one occasion, um, I met with a, a guy who had a pastor. He's actually no longer serving as a pastor. He had just about a month out of his heart attack. And when he met with this group of pastors, and I was in this group, he said, and the reason my heart attack were because of issues like this. Devastating. What do you do? What do you do when you face some of life's great disappointments? I'll tell you that if you do not know how to go to God, to learn how to lament the losses how to recover, how to deal with the disappointments, you're going to end up bitter, secluded, you're going to move into isolation, and you are going to function as an, as an individual who is far from life-giving because you're just over, overwhelmed with your hurt and your pain. You see, we must learn to go to God with the great disappointments in life. When Paul writes this, I want you to know, there, there probably are tears coming down his face Think of it, everyone, you are aware of this, Timothy. All in Asia, they turned away from me, especially these two guys. I, I just can't believe it. You need to learn to lament your losses, which means to, to actually take to God the loss, the disappointments, the frustrations. Like this, likely, this will also involve in talking with someone who is wise, who not only has, knows how to listen well, but also to point you in the direction to health and healing, of trusting in God. And I I'll tell you, like Paul has already told us, how do you emerge? How do you deal with the disappointments? Remember, verse 12, I know whom I have believed. I'm willing to suffer these things. Why? Verse 12, I know him. Verse 13, he tells us, it is the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Christ, Jesus himself, he'll give you faith, faith to move forward, faith to keep trusting and love, a love that comes from God. It's a supernatural love, a sacrificial love, a love that is an act of your will, or like he says in verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit this treasure that's been entrusted to you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, writes this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. 
When you're facing life's great disappointments, and I want you to know every single one of us does, perhaps you're even currently, God's sovereignty will be your sanity. You might want to write that down. God's sovereignty will be your sanity. Time and truth will bring clarity. And let me just tell you that pain, when we experience pain in our life, what it does is it it brings us back to the Lord. Something is broken and can't be easily remedied. It also, pain is actually part of the path to moving to healing, to going to God with our need and the desire, God, would you make me well? So let me give you just a few insights on how to deal with some of the great disappointments that you experience in your relationships. I'll give you about seven. Like one, you want to trust God to work these, together, work these difficulties together for his good, to shape you in Christ-likeness and for his glory. Remember also this, that those who have actively, actively sinned against you, I want you to know that they're accountable to God. Don't you like, you know what, I'm going to bring justice to bear, right? I'm going to really lay them out. No, you let God take care of that, okay? That is not your matter. Another, people and their behavior are your deep concern, but not ultimately your responsibility. That will be extremely freeing when you remember that. Another, see yourself as a servant of God. And this is going to help you keep a kingdom mindset and an eternal perspective. When you see yourself as a servant, all of a sudden all these expectations and these are my rights, you know what I'm saying? That kind of all kind of goes away. I'm a servant of the Lord. And this is where how he's called me to serve him. God help me to faithfully persevere. Um, two more. Remember this, we've all missed the mark. That's a definition of sin, right? And so when we remember that we've all missed the mark, guess what that does? That allows us to extend grace to others. There's only one perfect person in this room here. Did you know that? It's Jesus. All the rest of us, imperfect, sinners, in need of a perfect Savior. And finally, I'll say this. Forgiveness leads to freedom. When we forgive, we release someone from a debt, whether it's real or perceived, and forgiveness will make all the difference. And friends, if you and I are going to be life-giving individuals, life-giving believers, we must deal with the disappointments. Let me give you a second that we're going to see from this text here, and that is that we must move toward the need. In contrast to these two guys and all that turned away in Asia, we have a guy who is a stellar example of what it means to guard the treasure in the power of the Holy Spirit. Another man who knows the Lord intimately, and his name is Onesiphorus. And take a look at this. He's a guy who moves toward the need, another quality of a life-giving believer. And he says this, verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome... He eagerly searched for me and found me. Wow. You know, sometimes the best way to build up the kingdom of God is just to be an encouragement to other people. And notice what the text says, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. It's to speak of one's household, spoke of their family, but even perhaps even like their servants or laborers. Paul is saying, this guy Onesiphorus, He always was the guy who moved toward the need. And he says, may God be merciful 
his household, his family. You need to understand that if you're in a family, ministry in a family is always a team sport. Meaning, if you have an individual in your family that is serving in some capacity or, or, or speaking at this or running this ministry thing or, or plugging in here, chances are someone else is going to have to fill in the gaps and keep it running at home. And so for decades now, I've had the opportunity of being involved in all sorts of different ministry things, opportunities that would have never been possible if it wasn't for my wife, Karina, holding down the fort and making it happen. It's, it's always together. And so Paul is recognizing that. Onesiphorus traveling to Rome, 830 miles away from Ephesus, got across a couple seas. In order to get there, in order to do this, maybe he's on a business trip. Someone else is holding down the fort, but it is always together. And Paul recognizes that. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. You know, the Marines, they have a phrase. You run toward the fire. So there's like gunshots going off, right? There's a battle taking place. Civilians, whoa, we panic, we run away. We should, right? We're probably not going to be too helpful, right? But not Marines. Marines, they are trained. You run to the fire. And that's how Onesiphorus handles himself. There's a problem. There's a challenge. There's a great difficulty. Paul's in serious need. I got a business trip to Rome. I'm going to seek him out and find him. And try to imagine what that would be like. Okay, here you've got a guy, if he's from Ephesus, which is one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It's, it's a massive port city. He is going to have uh, kind of like this dialect, uh, provincial accent that comes with his speech. And he's now running around in Rome, the very heart of Caesar worship, the very place where the clampdown on Christians is happening, And with his strong accent, he is asking, where is this man, Paul? I'm looking for him. Why would you be looking for him? Some even know, he's he's like this supposed apostle. He's like laying a foundation for the church. He's a known Christian, and he's in prison. People were talking about this. Those are dangerous questions to be asking. A lesser man would do this, like show up in Rome. Hey, anybody know this guy, Paul? He's an apostle. Anybody know where he might be? He's in prison somewhere. Like, no, haven't even heard of him. A lesser person would go, I tried really hard, and I just couldn't find him. And you just kind of go in your merry way. But not if you're a life-giving believer, and you understand there's some needs to be met. You move toward the need. And so he does. In fact, notice what the text says. He says in verse 16, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Refresh has the idea of bringing like fresh life. It's in the word refreshment in the Greek, it actually has the root word for soul. This wasn't Onesiphorus showing up and saying, hey, Paul, I brought you a Gatorade and a granola bar. I hope things get better for you, right? No, 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 no. Well, he might have brought some things like that, but he really ministered to the heart to the soul, but brought true encouragement. You could think of it as a breath of fresh air to a weary soul. This is an esophorus. He often, this is a way of life. And something else I want you to, to pick up here. Look at verse 16. He says, the Lord grant mercy to the house of an esophorus. What, what's going on here? What is mercy? Where mercy is showing compassion, care, concern, to someone in need. 
And there's twice in this passage where Paul is asking for mercy for Onesiphorus in his household. It's very possible this minister to the minister is a person himself who is in great need. You could think of him this way, the wounded warrior. Despite his own challenges, whether they be physical, relational, emotional, spiritual, financial, we don't know, but twice we see Paul saying, may he receive mercy. This wounded warrior, he's moving forward. Despite his challenges, it's, it's like this. You serve as you persevere. And I want you to know that's a real challenge because you're hurting, you're bleeding, uh, your heart's breaking, but you serve as you persevere. I will tell you that all the significant mentors in my life either have been or are currently going through a major battle, a major, major set of discouragements. And yet you serve as you persevere. And that's what he's doing. In fact, when he was in Rome, you see that verse 17? He eagerly searched for me and found me. And Paul says, may the Lord, verse 18, grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Verse 18 tells us, Paul's saying, it's pretty cool. Paul is praying that may the Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus because he's praying for those who are supplying his need, encouraging his heart. You see the reciprocal relationship? I want you to know that's life-giving. That is exactly what Paul is experiencing, and he's doing it from, the, he's experiencing it from Onesiphorus. And when he talks about the day, this isn't the day uh, where, like, for instance, when he's talking about the Lord be merciful on that day where God is going to, like, bring judgment against the unbeliever. You see, the judgment that believers face, we don't face a judgment for our sin, though we are woefully sinful, because that's already been paid. Jesus Christ has already become our payment. The wages of sin is what? Death. That is why Jesus goes to the cross. He takes God's just wrath against sin. He takes the fullness of that judgment. So you and I will never be judged for our sin, but we will be, and you need to get ready for this, and you need to live your life in accordance you and I are going to be evaluated by what we did with what God gave us. There is going to be a judgment in that case, and it will take place on the day, and it's a judgment for rewards. What did you do with all that God has given you? Gifts, opportunities, resources, what did you do with it? You will be held account just like I will. And Paul is praying, may he receive mercy. And I want you to know there's another quality there's another quality of life-giving disciples that you see in verses 16 through 18. You see it modeled by Onesiphorus, and that is to love from the heart. What moves an individual to be so sacrificial, eagerly searching for, running around, getting into a Roman prison, which has got to be dangerous, right? I mean, think of it. You're here to see this guy Paul, the Christian. Do you want to join him? I mean, that's got to be a logical question and probably a real possibility. What would move an individual to sacrifice like that? I'll tell you. I'll give it to you in one word. Love. To love from the heart. You can know this. The devotion of your heart determines the direction of your life. That's true right now. You Look at your direction. What is it that you're enamored by? What do you give yourself to? What, what really stirs your passion? 
devotion of your life, of your heart, determines the direction of your life. For Onesiphorus, it's pretty clear he had a devotion to Jesus Christ. He was devoted to God. He treasured the gospel. He valued the word, right? Faith, love, and he loved God's people enough to be sacrificial. It cost him something. It cost his family something. But you love from the heart, and that's what God does. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, right? Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Or let me give you another verse. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. You see, the more you and I realize the tremendous, unending, eternal love that God has for us, when we rest in it, rejoice in it, we're healed by it, you know what we do? We actually start loving others. But if you have very little understanding of God's love, it's all superficial to you, never really dove into the scriptures, never just really let your heart rest and just be thrilled by that reality, chances are you don't express and extend a lot of love because we love because he has first loved us. You see, life-giving believers, they have a degree of EQ. They can tell when their emotions and their heart is not right. And instead of just like, well, I'm going to be in a funk for the next two weeks and people are going to pay for it, no, they go, God, something is wrong with my heart. I, I, something... I'm not seeing this clearly, I, whether I'm discouraged, I'm angry, bitter, whatever it is. And you go to God and you ask him for help, his spirit to be your healing. And you actually look at a, applicable Bible passages and you're like, okay. And what God does is he renews you. And if you want to know how Paul functioned, this really was his whole way of ministry. You see, he writes about it in rather good detail in Philippians chapter 1, like in verse 8, when he said this, For God is my witness, how I long for you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Just like Jesus moved, motivated by love, so it is with Paul, and so it is with us. And when that is our reality, know this. When we love from the heart, why, we become life-giving disciples to others. And let me point out one other thing. Life-giving disciples, like Anisphorus, they learn to minister as a way of life. Did you see that, verse 16? He often refreshed me, like more than once. Or in verse 18, he says, you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Not just in Rome, but like in Ephesus. Many, not, they're plural. You see, that is the heart of a life-giving disciple. They see their life as their ministry. Ministry isn't just something like, well, it takes place when I'm at church, and then apart from that, I pretty much do what I want. I just do my school thing, I'm athletics, I do my job, I do my life with my family, but then that's not ministry. No, but when you see all of your life as your ministry, guess what happens? You become life-giving wherever God has placed you. And that's what's happening here. And I'll tell you that being grateful will be extremely important with that. Like you see that in verse 3 in chapter 1 where Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. When gratitude enters into your life and becomes daily expression, you begin to see that, wow, God can use me in every capacity. Gratefulness leads to further ministry, and you're walking in the Spirit. And that's what we see here going on with Onesiphorus. He is encouraging. He is Spirit-filled. He is willing to do hard things 
because he knows whom he believes. Please never underestimate the power of encouragement. I read once, Mark Twain said this, one compliment can keep me going for a whole month. Wow, Mark Twain, one compliment can keep me going for a whole month. You see, life-giving relationships and a life-saving relationship with Christ, why, they are all sourced in this relationship that we have with him. We become like him. You could think of it this way. Life-giving relationships come from spirit-filled lives. And so as we grow in becoming spirit-filled believers, when that becomes our way of life, we stop functioning in the flesh so much. And you're like, okay, I've heard this flesh. What in the world is that? I'll I'll give you a verse here. Galatians 5.16. But I say to you, walk in the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Your flesh is your default setting. And the word flesh, it has significant moral overtones. It speaks of the sinful aspect of human nature, and it's expressed in attitudes and emotions and desires and words and actions that are just not yielded to God. So before I was a Christian, one word, flesh, right? Not given over to God, not enjoying him, not following him, not obeying him, not thinking of him. It's all about me flesh. Same same is true with you. But when you and I then place our faith in Christ, a change takes place. God's Spirit comes into our life. At the moment you believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13. But let me just tell you, you can still, even as a Christian, you can walk in the flesh. You're like, well, what does that look like? Well, give me an example. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, whoa, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of these things, they might show up in your life. And what do you do? You immediately, you repent, and you go to God and say, whoa, wait a second, I am so sorry, God, I confess, this is sin, this missed the mark. And you receive cleansing. But on the other hand, if these, and this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, and things like these, if this is your way of life, you need to know something. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are not in the kingdom. Why? Because you haven't come to a place of brokenness, belief, and trust in Jesus, the King, and the Lord. The great good news, the gospel opportunity, the decision before you right now is to trust him, to know him. Otherwise, flesh outside the kingdom of God. On the other hand, though, if you know Christ, we now have the capacity of walking in the Spirit. To give you a definition of that, it's the way of life yielded to God's control. It follows Christ's lead and his word and seeks the Holy Spirit's influence in the believer's attitudes and emotions and desires and words and actions. And you know the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who doesn't want to be around people like that? Man, that, people are just drawn to the Spirit-filled people. And friends, this is at the heart of life-giving relationships. We are filled with the Spirit, like it talks about in five, Ephesians 5.18. It is just this intentional dependence and delight upon God. 
It is trusting in his spirit to guide us, to empower us. And friends, when this is our reality, when we're regularly going to God, would you fill me with your strength, your love? May I delight in you. I'm depending on you. God, help me. Help me to respond correctly. Help me to fix this. Help me to forgive. Friends, we enter into the realm of life-giving disciples. You know, all of our homes, I'm going to guess, are connected to water, right? We have a water line. It's got sufficient water pressure. And you can have water. Um, There's probably a faucet in your house. All you have to do, though, by the way, if you look at it and just go, boy, sure, I'm really thirsty and I need water, you actually have to move the lever up, okay? Otherwise, if water's available and you're thirsty, but you've got to move the lever, right? You've got to turn it on. Same is true of electricity. You probably have electricity going to your little hut that you're living in, right? But uh, you still have to push the on light or flip the switch, right? Otherwise, no lights. You're sitting there in the darkness. I tell you that because the Holy Spirit, his power, his strength, his love, all of his fruit, they're readily available. You just have to depend upon him, talk with him, delight in him, ask him, fill me, God, I want to walk and your ways. And I want you to know that when we do that, we become encouragers. Uh, Yesterday at the men's breakfast, I talked with one of our junior high teachers, and this guy told me that he watched a mom berate her son, and this kid was totally defeated. And after she got done, he found him, and he put his hands on his shoulders, and he said, listen, I am for you. I love you. God loves you. And you are doing great things, and not to give up. I tell you, you know what that is? That's a life-giving relationship, pouring into someone who's in need. I'll tell you, every person is in need of encouragement. What the world needs is Jesus and those who are life-giving in their encouragement and in their relationships. I want you to know just even a word of encouragement might just save your marriage, certainly will change your family or your work dynamics. People will go farther than they ever thought they could, when there is someone that believes that they can and will say it. Years ago, uh, we were given some tickets to go to a Baylor basketball game. These are pretty good tickets. And uh, uh, we were sitting in a section, and and someone pointed out that um, one of the players, Jonathan Motley, his mom, was sitting a few rows in front of us and off to our right. And, uh, you know, great to know. And, um, you know, Jonathan Motley, definitely a a star on the Baylor basketball team. And when he was out there playing, um, Jonathan's mom... All of a sudden, she got up, and she would start, you got the power, you got the power, you know, and people were all like, and like, this woman was a one-woman choir, you know what I'm saying, like, whoa, and, and everybody's kind of looking, and, and she would do this at different times, and pretty soon, like, the people around, by the time we got to the second half, the entire section was doing this, and the cheerleaders, you know, they're doing their little thing there, but then, you got the power, and like, all these people are saying this, and they're like, Look at it, like, there she is. And her son, when he's on the basketball court, guess what? He responded to that. We were seeing things like this because he just had his mama's voice singing from the stands, you got the power. And friends, I want you to know God wants us to not only know that we have the power, the power in Christ, but to be proactive in our approach Intentionally encouraging, not passive, but to be a blessing. Each one, encourage one, and do it in God's strength. And let's see what God is going to do as we walk in the Spirit. And just to give you an example of a young lady in our church who's 
a life-giving believer, I want you to watch this. all got along and we were nearly done. We were almost ready to graduate and tragedy struck one of my classmates. Suddenly she lost her dad and she had been incredibly close to her dad and it was such a big loss for her. Um, um, Probably a year before that I would have just, you know, kind of said, oh, I'm so sorry and then kept going about my day. Um, But We had just experienced two really hard losses in our family, and I just felt compelled by the Lord to just reach out to her and to say, you know, you used to talk about your dad all the time, and I know this is a really hard loss. I never knew your dad. Would you be willing to just get together and anytime you want to maybe tell me about your dad? And so... I went over to her house and she had pictures and she had a wedding video on the screen and she was ready. And for hours I sat at her house and she told me all about her dad. And it was in that moment that I realized we had this connection that we hadn't had for two years. And all of a sudden we were able to uh, relate to each other through tragedy and through grief. And um, ever since then, you know, she has since moved away from Waco, but we still keep in touch through we're able to record videos to each other. And every single time I record a video to her, she will respond to me and say, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I needed to hear, or that was so helpful, or you encouraged me. And every time I'm like, Lord, I don't know what I said on that video that that meant so much to her. But yet over and over and over again for years, the Lord has used me and her life to be a light. And it reminds me of what we taught our tiniest FX campers this summer, uh, ages three to five, that when life gets dark, we shine Jesus's light. And that's what I've been doing for years in her life, is shining the light of Jesus. You know, being that person to somebody, the person that they know they can go to that will speak truth, that will speak light, that will speak joy into their life circumstances that might not seem so joyful, can really position us well to to actually have a relationship of meaning, a life-giving relationship to her and to me because she will encourage me. And that's what life-giving relationships are. They are our opportunity to open ourselves up, to almost get out of the way and let God work through us in the life of somebody else. God is sovereign and he is going to use us if we're willing to trust him and let him use us in the lives of other people. Indeed. Remember this, life-giving relationships come from spirit-filled lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, to worship you in spirit and in truth. If there's someone here today who's never really truly trusted you, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I want to know him as Savior, follow him as Lord. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. And God, would you continue to work in profound ways to shape us, form us, and fashion us as the people of God who live and love in your strength. We ask this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.